Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. That was a little weak today. Are you guys ready to go with part four of our series, Unbelievable? Are you with me? Here, bring some energy online. Um, throw something in the chat. Let us know that you're with us. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are brand new, if you're trying to figure things out, somebody invited you, uh, maybe because of this series, you have questions about the Bible, or you're a longtime follower of Jesus looking for how you can uh, grow in your faith and journey with Jesus. Man, wherever you're at, we're so glad that you're with us. And I specifically am super excited if you are in that place of like, I've got questions, I'm trying to figure it out. Our church in a lot of ways was designed with you in mind. I have such a heart for like genuine skeptics and this series honestly is perfect for you, but this series is also perfect for people like me that like grew up in the church deal and somebody handed you a Bible along the way. Maybe this is your story where this is my first Bible actually at five and it was saran wrapped and mapped and chaptered in verse. I mean, that's just how you got it. And somebody handed it to you as like a reward at VBS, uh, Vacation Bible School. If some of you are not around the church, I'm, some of this I'm speaking a language you don't understand, but like they hand you a Bible and they're like, here you go. This is God's word. It's 100% true. You should believe it. You should obey it. And I'm like, yes, I will do that without ever reading it. And that's the story of a lot of us, right? And for some of you, like, that's worked. Uh, maybe like 20 years after that, 30 years after that, you followed Jesus and it's been good. And like, when you bump up against something you don't understand, it's just, well, I just believe it. I just have faith. I just trust. And that's awesome. But this series is incredibly important for you. And it's incredibly, incredibly important for some of you who just walked away from it because somebody pointed to something in the Old Testament that just didn't jive. You've got questions about around the reliability of like the authorship of the scripture. You don't understand certain things in it. You feel like your adult questions dwarf your Sunday school answers if you grew up with that. And you couldn't be intellectually dishonest, so you just walked away from it. And it's why this series is so incredibly important for you as well. So here's what I've been talking about for four weeks, and that is the story of the Bible. And really, I, I would make the argument that the story of how we got the Bible is almost as important as what's in the Bible. Because for a lot of us, if we don't know the story of the Bible, it is so easy to discount what's in it. And so I've just been journeying for that. This is now the fourth week. And here's what I've said all throughout this series. I'll catch you up real quick. Um, this is very different than any other series that I've ever done. In fact, I talked to um, a high school girl after last week's message, message, and she was just super honest, which I appreciated. She's like, I had no idea what you were talking about. I was like, well, that's encouraging. Um, it was just like a huge history lesson. I glazed over like 10 minutes in. I was out. I was like, all right, we'll come to the next series. So this one is very different um, than normal. Every week has built on the previous week. So my hope is, and I do not always say this, go back and listen to it on the app, watch it on YouTube, go through sequentially parts one to now this week four, because it'll fill in all the blanks in this movie because it really has built on um, the previous messages. So that's kind of the disclaimer. But, but here's what we've been talking about is there is a story of the Bible that most of us don't know. 
And it's a little bit complicated because a lot of us, as I just mentioned, how we got our Bible is not how we got the Bible. And here's the thing. The story of the Bible is the fact that Jesus did not write this, which is maybe new information to some of you, but Jesus is the reason that we have it. So what we've said throughout this series without going too deep into it is the moment the story of the Bible began was the moment that Jesus' followers believed that Jesus was not who Jesus said he was. Because all throughout Jesus' life, as we've said, Jesus would say things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unlike any other religion, Jesus didn't create a teaching that said, I want you to believe resurrection or I want you to believe this about the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the resurrection. It's extraordinarily personal. And so unlike other movements where the leader dies and they can take the teachings forward, that was not the case with Jesus because Jesus positioned himself at the center of the movement. Jesus positioned himself at the center of the message so that when Jesus died, the movement and the message died with Jesus. And it's why all of Jesus' followers left on Easter weekend. There were no Jesus followers after Jesus died. You should just know that. There were no Christians any longer. Nobody believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Everybody left. Everybody fled. Everybody was afraid. Everybody was disillusioned and hiding because they believed everything had been lost. And the only thing that turned the tide, the only thing that re-engaged was an extraordinary event where three days later they had breakfast with their resurrected Messiah on the beach. And that tends to change everything. And then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And, And I get if you're skeptical, like this is the thing to wrestle with is, did this happen in history? I'll just tell you, this is what secular historians struggle with because they don't doubt any longer the existence of Jesus or the death of Jesus, obviously, but they they know what I know, and that is that Jesus made himself the message in the movement. So what they cannot figure out is without a resurrection, how did this survive beyond the first century? The only explanation is that something extraordinary happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And then guys like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they sat down to record the events of what they experienced or the experiences of eyewitnesses. And here's what you got to know that we've said throughout this series. John did not sit down to write the gospel of John. John sat down to document the life and the message of Jesus after the resurrection because this event had happened and he knew he had to preserve it for future generations. Matthew had no idea of the Bible. Mark had no idea he was writing the Bible. He was documenting what happened as he interviewed Peter so that it could be preserved for future generations because they knew that God had done something unbelievable in their midst. Like you just need to know this. Then the first and second and third century, there were thousands of followers of Jesus, and there was no the Bible as we know it. And then after a while, as we've said, Gentiles began to embrace the message of Jesus and the events of the life of Jesus. And we've said this, that as Gentiles became enamored with Jesus, they became enamored with the sacred text that told of his coming. So they would hear about it, the message would get to them, and they would realize this is true. God's done something in our midst. This is real. And it's not just for Jewish people. Everybody is invited in. And as they got to know the story and the message of Jesus and what happened, they became enamored with these Hebrew or Jewish texts, specifically what we would refer to as the law and the prophets. And they would begin to study these and pour over these, looking for evidences of Christ, believing that all along for hundreds of years, the Hebrew or the Jewish people had pointed to Jesus, that one day there's going to be a Messiah who's going to do something extraordinary that's going to offer something to the entire world. 
And so as the Gentiles began to embrace these texts, here's where it kind of became a tension point. The Gentile people embraced the Jewish scriptures not as Jewish scriptures, but they embraced the Jewish scriptures as Christian scripture. And so by the middle of the second century, the church had incorporated this Hebrew Bible into Christian worship, and they gave it a brand new name, which would be known as the Old Covenant, or later from the Latin, the Old Testament. But here's what you gotta know, as all of this happened by second century, third century, there was no the Bible. There were these Hebrew texts, there were all of this documentation, not gospels, they had no idea of a gospel or a Bible, but all this documentation of the life and the events of Jesus, and they had these letters from what was becoming a very famous church planter to his Gentile congregations, and that's all that there was. And where I wanna land the plane today is with that really famous Gentile church planter by the name of Saul of Tarsus, as he was originally known. Now, here, here's the thing with Saul of Tarsus. That was um, basically his Hebrew name. He was Saul of Tarsus. Later, his name changed to Paul, which was his Roman name. Because what many of you may know is he became tasked with the responsibility of taking the message of Jesus to the Gentile world. And so, in order to do that, he would use his Roman name, which would be Paul. Now, here's the thing about Paul. If you don't know him, um, I'll give you a little, like, just summary of his life. If Paul had a Twitter bio, it would read this. Um, at Apostle Paul, if it was available. Pharisee, author, preacher, church planner. I mean, he'd probably flex a little bit more than that, but, like, that's just the basics. That's who Paul was. Um, I'm sure that he would snatch up as quick as he could ApostlePaul.com if that was available. Like, that, that was Paul. And, and Paul... So many of you know, becomes the greatest church planter of all times. But here's the thing. As much as that's how you might identify who Paul is, if you know about Paul, this guy that took this message to the Gentile world all around the Mediterranean rim or the Mediterranean basin, that's not at all how Paul saw himself. In fact, this is what Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, when he writes this letter in the first century to this place called Corinth in this little Corinthian church that he started, he said this, I am the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve, thanks man, to be called an apostle. And you're like, Paul, like, what's the deal, man? Like, wh like why? And Paul's about to tell us, like, I, I don't feel like I should even be included into this. I don't know why I'm a part of this story. I, I don't know why God would ever choose me. And he says, this is the reason why, end of verse nine, because I persecuted the church of God now, just real quick, this is an extraordinary part of this whole narrative, an extraordinary part of how we got the Bible, because here is Saul, who later becomes Paul. Here's his backstory. Dude thought that this thing called the way, it wasn't even known as Christianity in the first century, was basically a Nazarene cult that had hijacked the Hebrew scripture. And Paul, as many of you know, was called basically a Pharisee of all Pharisees, meaning he was a part of the Jewish movement or the Jewish establishment. He was highly educated. He was a part of the Jewish religious movement. In fact, he knew the Hebrew and Jewish scriptures better than maybe anybody else knew it. And this guy was bent on stamping out this movement called the way because they were hijacking the, the Hebrew scriptures. They were messing up the delicate balance of power between the Jewish people and Rome. And they were perverting this religion that he had given his life to as a Pharisee and as an educator and as a part of the religious establishment. So he decided, I'm gonna do everything that I can to put them out of business. 
And so he actually got letters from chief priests to go and oversee the imprisonment of Jewish people who embraced the message of Jesus, a part of this thing called the way. And he would go into towns and he would go into villages and in some cases he would oversee the torture of other Jewish men mainly who had embraced this movement. And later on, and this is such a fascinating story, and this is something if you're a skeptic, you kind of have to answer, how in the world did this happen with Paul? That he was hell-bent on, I'm gonna stop this movement and literally oversee the death of people who follow Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus, somebody who knew the Hebrew and Jewish scriptures better than anybody else knew them. Like, how in the world did that happen? And so there's this dramatic moment, and God basically saves Paul, and Paul is tasked with taking the message of Jesus to the entire known Gentile world around the Roman Empire. But with that, he had all kind of shame and regret that he was lugging from his past. Like, I know this isn't real to us, but it was real to Paul that when he would walk into a church or a village later on as a follower of Jesus, he would be eyeball to eyeball with women whose husbands he had overseen their death. He would look face to face with kids and he had destroyed their families. He struggled with the oppressive nature of shame and guilt and regret for years that you see all throughout his very authentic and very realistic writing throughout the New Testament. And so he says, listen, I've been called by God. I've been equipped by God, but I don't even feel like I'm worthy to be a part of this. And I just wanna say this one thing before I move on because Paul is an example of what the entire New Testament scriptures and the meta-narrative of the scripture is all about is that no matter what you've done and no matter who you've hurt and no matter how far you've run, Jesus invites you in and Jesus invites you to follow. And his love is unwavering, unending, and it never runs out. And if there were limits to God's love, Paul would have exposed them 2,000 years ago. If he's invited in, you're invited in. But Paul's like, I just know me and I don't even feel worthy to be a part of this story. But here's the thing, Paul was an unbelievable part of this story. It's why you have one of these on your phone or somewhere in your house that you can't find or a physical Bible in your lap. And here's the three major contributions that Paul made that I'm gonna roll through real quick as we land the plane on this series. And the first one is this, that Paul wrote some of it. In fact, Paul wrote a lot of it. 13 letters, and he wrote more than this, but 13 letters that Paul wrote survived antiquities. And eventually they were copied. They were preserved to the point that people gave up their lives for them. They were circulated and eventually they became considered scripture. But here's what you have to know again, and I've said this throughout the series. Paul had no thought of the Bible. Paul wasn't writing the Bible. Paul was writing to his friends about what he had discovered, about conversations he'd had, about coffee that he had with eyewitnesses who were there through all of the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. He was just writing to Christian friends. At no point was Paul writing the Bible. Paul had no concept of a Bible. And so he writes 13 letters that eventually make their way into the scriptures, but he's just writing to people in different regions and different areas about the fact that, listen, I literally tried to stop Christianity and now I'm a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you why. And then the second massive contribution that Paul made was this, stick with me. He explains the relationship between parts of it. And I'll explain what I mean. This is so massive. 
He explains how Christians should view and use the Old Testament. And, and I'll just say this as humbly as I can. A lot of Christians have no idea how to use and view the Old Testament. It's why we rip verses out of context. It's why we create crazy theology and actually prop up political and religious movements out of verses that expired a long time ago because we have no idea the relationship between the Old and New Testament. Paul comes along and he helps explain some of that for us. And he knows better than anybody because this guy knew the law and the prophets better than anybody. And so he has extraordinary clarity around the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it is absolutely unbelievable. And one of the really difficult things that has caused some of you to question or not understand or just embrace some really weird theology is because nobody taught you the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul actually talks about this. In fact, I think if Paul could sit down and talk to us the first time that we were handed the Bible or downloaded it on our phone, I think this is what Paul would say. In fact, I think he would give us two things. And the first thing that Paul would say that's very clear in the New Testament is this, that you should read the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation, but not application. All of the weird stuff that you have experienced in church is a broad statement, but it's pretty true, probably surrounded this weird melding of Old Testament covenant theology that was moved into the Jesus movement and everything went off the rails. And Paul comes along to go, no, no, that's not the case. In fact, he's really clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, 11, you could look that up, but he is really clear that God had an ancient covenant to ancient Israel and the story is told all throughout the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but eventually that old ancient ancient covenant with Israel was actually replaced by a new covenant and a better covenant, meaning all along the Old Testament scriptures had an expiration date on them. Does it mean they're not inspired? No. Does it mean that they're not valuable? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that basically they were a cocoon that shared the story of God birthing a Messiah that would bring about something brand new for not just Jewish people, but for all people. And now you should view it as something that tells the story in its inspired form of what God was doing throughout history to send a Messiah. But it is not for you. It is not applicable to you. It is applicable for motivation, inspiration, and tell the story of what God has done in history. But it is not directed to you and to the church today in terms of application. And all of our weird theology comes from ripping verses out of context to an ancient people and trying to unite it with the movement of Jesus. And it perverts the movement of Jesus every single time. And then the second thing I think Paul would say, besides just reading the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation, not application, I think the second thing he would say is this, take your application cues from Jesus' new covenant commands. I just cannot stress this enough, and if you want more information, I did a series called What Would Jesus Undo, where I spent a whole, like, basically four weeks talking about the relationship between the Old and New Testament. But basically, Jesus would say, listen... Everything has changed. Paul comes along in the New Testament to go, everything has changed. Now, it's all summed up in Jesus' new covenant commands. And every church that wants to be on mission, they'll just find different ways to constantly rehearse and repeat and preach Jesus' new covenant command. And they'll be accused of being shallow and watering it down, but Jesus is like, this literally is the whole deal. In an upper room with his dudes, 
with them having no idea what was about to go down. Like you probably know the story and even if you haven't been in church, you've heard the verses. Jesus turns to them and says, listen, I know you probably know all 613 laws. I know many of you memorized the Torah in Jewish Sunday school. I know you know the deal. I know you know when to stand up and sit down and rehearse and when to bring your your sacrifices to the temple and all of that's amazing. But I'm telling you, there was an expiration date on that. That was amazing because it had a plan to move us to where we are today. But now I'm here and I'm about to introduce a brand new covenant to the world and a brand new command. And he turns to these guys and says, a new command I give you. I want you to love one another, not the way other Jewish people love you, not the way other Gentile people love you, not the way you tend to view the Samaritans or women or children in our culture, not the war between the Romans and the Gentiles. I want you to love other people the way that I have loved you. And, And later he says, and all of the law and the prophets hinge on those two commands. All of the laws, all of the rules, all of the Old Testament stuff, it was a cocoon to birth a Messiah in a brand new movement. And I'll just tell you, the church today is so unbelievably uncomfortable with nuance and with ambiguity and with gray, and I'm not sure, but I'm telling you, that's the entire New Testament because the entire New Testament leaves us with no rule books. Are you aware of all of the things that Jesus did not talk about in the New Testament? Are you aware of all the things where Jesus said, let me give you a verse for that? Instead, Jesus raised the standard to go, no, you don't need a verse. You don't need seven more laws. You need one command. I want you to love other people the way that I've loved you. And if you wanna love me, that's what it looks like. It's not you doing things for me. It's you doing things for other people around you who are made in my image. So when you are not sure what to do, what does love demand of you? It's gonna be messy. It's gonna be nuanced. There's gonna be ambiguity. There's gonna be moments where you're not really sure because this isn't Old Testament law anymore. It's based on love and love will lead you to places that are messy, uncomfortable and outside of the ordinary. But that is the movement of following Jesus. So Jesus says, follow me and by this, everybody's going to know that you're my disciple. What if we just got that right? And then Jesus would give them an example that would take their breath away because it took his breath away. And Paul sits down in the New Testament and he writes these letters with basically examples of of applications of Jesus' new covenant command. I'll tell you where we get off off the rails is when we again start to take this old covenant, Old Testament kind of theology thinking into the New Testament where we start to view it as a rule book. It's not a rule book. Paul's just going, let me give you a few examples to get you started. Now go love. When you're not sure what to do, what does love demand of you? It's gonna be messy. You're not gonna understand. There's gonna be gray areas. What does love demand of you? Paul said things like this when he was writing to a church in Philippi in Philippians 2, 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Paul's like, let me just give you a couple examples. In your relationship with one another, like what, everybody? Yeah, every relationship. Gentiles with Jews, Jews with Gentiles, Roman people, Canaanite people, Samaritan people. Anybody you come, come in contact with, children, 
women, those on the outside, tax collectors, pimps, thugs, in your relationships, I want you to have the same mindset of Christ. And that is that every single individual you're eyeball to eyeball with has intrinsic value. They have extraordinary worth. They're made in my image. And so I don't want you to treat them the way that culture treats them. I don't want you to use the scale that everybody else used. This is a new day. It's a new movement. It's a new command. I want you to deal with them in relationship with the same mind that I deal with you. And you know you, don't you? Paul's like, go do that. He says this in Ephesians 5, 21. This was extraordinary. This was revolutionary. This doesn't mean much to us, but he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, not out of reverence for other people who don't deserve submitting to. I want you to do it out of reverence for Christ. We always hijack this for this antiquated and, and honestly misapplication of marriage relationship. This was a game changer because what Paul is saying in marriage relationship is with a man and a woman, it is no longer that now a woman is subservient to a man and it's male domination. Now it is mutual submission. And Jesus is actually leveling the playing field through Paul to say women have equal value of men. And now it is, I want you to submit to one another, not because she deserves submission or he deserves submission, but out of reverence for Christ who laid down everything for the sake of you. And over and over again, he would say things like, listen, you're all about individual, what I wanna get, my rights, getting mine. And Jesus said, that is not even a priority on the totem pole of the Jesus movement. No longer is it about what you deserve and your individual rights. It's about you going and dying to yourself for the rights, for the betterment, for the establishment, and for the love and edification of other people around you. No longer is it about you. It's about you doing what I've done for other people around you. And then he said this, last one, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. You're like, but he's an idiot. No, 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 I know, that's not the point. You You don't know her, it's not the point. You don't know how off the rails their views are, that's not the point. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And then he drops the mic and walks away. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You lose all leverage, all authority, every platform. And you recognize it's you and everybody else. And you've been forgiven. And you gotta do that for one another if you wanna follow me. And so Paul says, the Old Testament is incredible. It's inspired to know the story of how we got here. Use it for motivation, inspiration. Do not use it for application. You will stone your kids. (laughs) Instead, the application is now. I want you to love other people the way that I've loved you. And come on, I'm just gonna say it again, but for real. What if we just got that right. And I'm so moved by this because we know, and I don't mean this in any sort of way, but we know so little theology and so little history that we're trying to leverage everything else in the world other than what these Jewish and Gentile people leverage with no influence, no money, no authority, no political position under the oppression of Rome and they changed the world. This is your marching orders. And then here's the third thing, and this is maybe, this is the most important thing that I'm gonna land on as we end. The three contributions Paul made was he wrote some of it, a lot of it in terms of the scriptures. He explains the relationship between parts of it. 
And then thirdly, he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. And if you're a skeptic, I want you to lean in for like the next six minutes because your freshman English teacher may not have told you this. And I wanna give you some, a little bit of context to just wrestle with and go away with. Paul authenticates the most important event recorded in the scriptures. Listen, the story of the Bible begins with the resurrection. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible because the story of Jesus would not be worth telling. And so the story of the Bible began with the resurrection and the dispute is the authorships and the dates of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke and John. And kind of the narrative goes that that many years later, the Christian community made up these stories. They made up these fables or fairy tales or this thing to try to keep the movement alive, including the resurrection. Now, part of the reason real quick that, that they do this is because some secular thinkers just assume that it has to be 70, 80 to 100 years later, even without evidence. And here's the reason they assume that is because they know how long it takes for fable or fairy tale to take hold historically. It generally is between 70 and 100 years. All the eyewitnesses have to die off. In fact, I had a seminary professor years ago that said, listen, watch. By the time you get to the 70 or 80 year mark, people will question the validity or the authenticity of the Holocaust. And I thought, you're crazy. You're smart, but you're crazy. And lo and behold, there is massive sections of people who doubt that a Holocaust ever happened. Why? Because that's what always happens historically around the 80 to 100 year mark that things start to develop, stories start to develop, narratives start to develop. And so secular thinkers assume because there can't be a resurrection that they had to have written this way later. And so they assume Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't really write it, but it was written by other Christians who made up the story and made up the resurrection years later. Now, there's so many problems with that, but just one, and then I'll move on to try to explain this a little bit, is why in the world would they embrace that? Just in terms of a practical standpoint, nobody got any book deals out of it. Nobody gained any more followers. They lost their careers. They lost their jobs. They were disenfranchised from their families. Many of them were persecuted for what they believed. They were moved to the margins of society. They had nothing to gain by making up a story 100 years later. Nothing to gain. But Here's where I want to land for just a second and give you a little bit of information because the problem with that argument actually comes with something that Paul said. Because Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I already cited, I'm going to look at another part of it. Paul's letter to the Corinthian believers is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. Didn't happen 80 years later. Didn't happen 100 years later. It didn't happen 150 years later by a group of people that were just so bent on, we gotta keep this thing alive. Paul gives extraordinary evidence that it happened immediately, not eventually. Now, here's what you need to know, and you can, you can look at this for yourself in between. I know you got a job and kids and a life, so I, this is the stuff I do. But here's the thing, no secular thinker, no reputable secular thinker, and you can look this up for yourself, disputes the fact that Paul wrote to a Corinthian church this letter included in the New Testament in AD 55. Nobody disputes that. Paul wrote a letter to this church in Corinth around that Mediterranean basin in AD 55 that was ultimately included in our New Testament scriptures and in our Bible. 
And when he wrote that in AD 55, the church in Corinth had actually been planted by him three years earlier. And this is where I may lose you and I may get more comments after this of like, I just didn't understand anything you were talking about. But I think that this crowd and online is above average. So stick with me just for a second as I put dates and numbers and whatever, and then I'll move on and tie a bow on this thing. But he, he wrote this in AD 55, and the church was planted in Corinth by him in AD 52. No secular thinker doubts the fact that Paul wrote Corinthians in AD 55. Not many reputable, anyway. And he planted the church in AD 52. And he planted that church because he had conversations with Jesus' apostles who had all been there and seen it and experienced it in Jerusalem in AD 40 and AD 49. He had two different visits where they talked, where he heard the accounts, where he heard the stories, where he knew what had happened, where they recounted all of the detail, what they heard, what they saw, what they felt, what they smelled. Paul heard all of it in AD 40 and AD 49. And that first visit in AD 40 was just three years after Paul's conversion in AD 37. Some would say AD 35, but somewhere between AD 35 and AD 37, which means that that conversion and then those conversations and ultimately that church plant and church letter, that that initial conversion was three to five years after the resurrection of Jesus in AD 33. If the Christian community fabricated the stories, then how did Paul know about it so close to the resurrection? In the same cities, around the same people, in the same region, with the same relationships, where it was widely known and talked about the fact that God had done something through Jesus and he had rose from the dead. And that was not 80 to 100 years later. That was several years later as Paul's conversion took place and then he met with Jesus' apostles in Jerusalem in AD 40. In fact, Paul says in this Corinthian letter that survived antiquity that that there were literally hundreds of people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus. And again, belief in the resurrection, and you just need to know this, and you can study this for yourself in your free time. It was alive and well in Jerusalem immediately, not eventually. Immediately, not eventually. In fact, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse one, to this church that he had planted in AD 52, as he's pinning this in AD 55, he said, now brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Meaning when I was there three years ago in AD 52, you guys heard me talk about this. I had conversations with all of the guys that were there. We talked about this. I heard the stories. I was with them in Jerusalem in 40 and in 49. And I talked to you about the fact that God has done something through Jesus. He is alive. And because he is alive, it validates everything that he said about his life and about his death. And then he says this in verse three, for what I received from who? From the guys that were there. When I talked to them in Jerusalem, For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, meaning Christians in Jerusalem already believed that this had happened. This is not 80 years later. This is a few years later and the narrative was God has done something. Christ died for our sins. There are hundreds, even thousands of people that believe that took place and then hundreds that say they saw Jesus. And then verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
And then he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12. And they're like, well, how do you know? Because I saw Peter and I talked to him. That's how I know. We were together in Jerusalem. And then I talked to the eyewitnesses who were there that told me about the events that had happened that are still circulating all over the city. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters talking about followers of the way at the same time. I'm like, you sure that's not mass hallucination? And Paul's like, that had to be some really good weed. We're talking about 500 people at the same time who all validate that they saw the same thing. And in fact, really what Paul's saying is, hey, if you want, I'll hook you up with them. Most of them are still around. You can go have a conversation. If you doubt me, go. Fred is off of Straight Street in Jerusalem. He can tell you exactly what happened. Fred's not a Hebrew name, but like, that's all that came to me. <laughs> and then I love this, most of whom are still living. And this has nothing to do with the message, but I, I, can, I can never move past this part of the verse without landing on this just for a second. Though some have fallen asleep. And I love throughout the New Testament that over and over again, because of this message, they talk of death as, as falling asleep. And Paul uses this language for a, a very clear reason is because when you fall asleep, what happens eventually? You wake up. And what Paul is doing is citing all of those men and women who were there and saw it go down to say, you, you just need to know, including me, because I believe it's true, I talked to the people who saw it, we, we lost our fear of death. They lost their fear of death because they saw their resurrected savior. And people who could do nothing but hide and cower and deny to middle-aged schoolgirls in courtyards suddenly became bold proclaimers of faith. And all of those initial followers mainly gave up their lives, not for what they believed, but what they say they saw. And the reason that there was a hinge point, a tipping point, and everything changed was because they were afraid of death. And then they saw face-to-face -face their resurrected Savior, and the fear of death wow. dissipated forever. And then... He appeared to James. And Paul's like, this may be all the evidence you need. I went to Jesus' brother and I talked to him about the resurrection. And you just need to know this because maybe you don't have the historical context. Jesus' family thought Jesus was a nut job all the way up to Easter weekend. Yeah. Thought you're crazy, you're off the rails, you should maybe be institutionalized. We don't know how you're doing some of the miracle stuff, but you are crazy and somehow you have lost your mind, including James. And then suddenly, James, his brother, who thought his brother was insane, believed his brother was his Lord and Savior. And Paul's like, I had a conversation. This may be all the evidence you need. I had a conversation. If you have siblings, you know how amazing this. I had a conversation with Jesus' brother, James, who believed that his brother rose from the dead and believes that his brother is his Lord and Savior and eventually would give his life for that. What would it take to convince your brother or sister that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God? It would take a resurrection. And then, I love this, and I just wanna point this out because you just look right over this, you wouldn't even know that this is the case, but in this next part, and I'll move quickly, scholars are convinced that Paul's actually reciting a pre-existing creed. So what Paul says next, Paul's quoting. And this is something that had already existed, had already been known, people had already embraced it by the thousands, had already believed it when Paul is writing this in AD 55. 
and he reaches into a well-known creed, and a creed is basically just this. It is a carefully crafted statement used to ensure accurate transmission of belief. A carefully crafted statement used to ensure accurate transmission of belief. And so Paul actually reaches into the cultural creed language to make sure that he gets it right and actually to play on something that his readers and people in the city of Jerusalem and Corinth would already know about. And he says this. This is the creed that Paul quotes. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried and rose from the dead and was seen. And this was so widely known that it had already been summarized and memorized in a creed by the time Paul writes this in AD 55. Christ died for our sin and was buried. You guys have heard this, talking to his first century readers. And he rose from the dead and he was seen. Paul is such an extraordinary part of the story of the Bible because he wrote some of it, 13 of the letters. He explains the relationship between parts of it. And this is the most important thing. He authenticates the most important event recorded in it. And I've told you for years, if you consider me pastor, you've listened to my messages or whatever, that there's really one question to answer above every other question for the skeptic, and that is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And to quote my mentor, it's easy because if somebody can predict their own death and pull it off, you've got to go with whatever that guy says. All the other questions are legit. Figure those out. I get grappling with Genesis and some of the seeming contradictions and where the art comes in and some weird stuff in the New Testament and then Revelation's a whole nother story. And I get all of that. You should grapple with all of that and you should never be intellectually dishonest. This is an intellectual faith. But the question is did Jesus rise from the dead in history? And if he did, that undeniable event explains or overshadows, I should say, every unexplainable question. In the years that followed, other people would document what was written. James, his own brother, would come along and write. John would write some other letters that got included. Peter would give his own account as he dictated it and People will talk about he was unschooled, ordinary fisherman. How did he write that? It's an easy answer. In many cases, they dictated it. Peter didn't write it himself. He dictated it to somebody who did know how to write. And he told about what happened. And then later, the author of Hebrews, and here's what you have to know. They were included in the scripture and they were seen as valuable because of who dictated or wrote them. And they were collected and they were preserved and people risked their lives for them. And for several hundred years, I just wanna emphasize this one more time, there were thousands of followers of Jesus and there was no the Bible. And then in the fourth century, when finally it was safe to work in the open because Constantine came along and issued an edict and now against all odds, this thing called the way, later known as Christianity, became the preferred religion of the empire. And they actually, in part, were funded by the state. And all of these people who tried to preserve and copy these ancient and valuable texts that weren't even ancient at that point, had to hide by candlelight, feared for their life, had to do everything they can knowing that they were risking their life. Suddenly they could operate in the open. Suddenly they could copy in the open. Suddenly they could assemble in the open. And not till the fourth century was the stage set. 
after hundreds of years of followers of Jesus who believed in a resurrection in the fourth century, finally the stage was set for ta biblia, the Bible. And you can hate it, you can love it, you can discount it, you cannot argue with this. It has shaped, this library has shaped Western civilization. And more importantly to me and more personal to me and why I wanted to do this series because I, I grapple with all the questions that many of you grapple with. It's part of how I'm wired that sometimes I don't like. I like, I wanna know answers and I wanna be intellectually honest and I wanna make sure that I'm not just blindly, you just need to have faith and you just need to trust. I, I don't like that. And here's what you need to know about the New Testament. And this is so missed. Paul over and over again says, God did something in history so that you could know. It was never about faith and faith. It was never about you just need to trust. It was, I want you to have faith in who Jesus is and what he did, did, not because you just need to muster up enough faith, because I actually did something in history that could be documented so that you could know, so that there would be an intellectual base for your faith. God walked out of a grave alive, so trust me. And this book, man, has changed my life, but here as we close, what I want you to know, the Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. And if there had been no resurrection, there would be no the Bible. Because the story of Jesus would not be worth telling. And the only reason that the story of Jesus is worth telling is because it is a story for every single generation and it is a story for you. And Paul summarized it by quoting this creed better than we could. Christ died for our sins and was buried and he rose from the dead and was seen. That is the scriptures. Christ died for our sin and was buried and he rose from the dead and he was seen. And as we end, I just wanna end with this. The story of the Bible reminds us of this we may be asking the wrong questions. The question is not, are you at peace with everything in the Bible? The question is, are you at peace with the God that reveals himself in the Bible through walking out of a grave alive and says to you that God so loved this dysfunctional, messed up world and dysfunctional, messed up me that he sent his only son and whoever believes in him will have life and will have freedom and will find forgiveness in him. And that is where the story of the Bible intersects with your story. Would you stand with me wherever you're at? Would you join me online? And I've done this throughout this series and I wanna do it one more time. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes and Nobody looking around, just out of respect for people who are around you. And throughout this series, we've had more people than I've ever seen in a few week period place their faith and trust in Christ. And it hasn't been because they got all their questions answered, but because of this undeniable reality where they would just say, I, I believe and I place my faith and my trust in Jesus. And so I wanna give you that opportunity one more time to join dozens and dozens of people just over these weeks who have made the decision to be a follower of Jesus. And you can pray this prayer after me. As I've said, the prayer does not save you. There's no perfect words or magic words or some kind of magic mantra. It's simply your declaration of faith and trust. But I wanna lead you in that to just pray this. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sin, past, present, and future. And I believe that you rose again in history. And right now, 
I'm asking you to save me and to forgive me. And the scripture says, by that declaration of faith and trust in Christ, because this is a new covenant that's not based on the Old Testament, Old Covenant, where it's if you do, then God will. This is God did, and now you just need to accept it. You become a son and a daughter of God. You become secure in his love and grace. Your past does not exceed the past of Paul. So he's inviting you in to go one day, Paul, murderer, Paul overseeing the death of other image bearers who I love is is standing before me face to face, loved and accepted, worthy and secure. And so will you despite your past because it's based on my faithfulness and not yours. So one more time, if this is you in this moment, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose again from the grave for me. And I'm trusting you to forgive me and to save me. With nobody looking around, if that's you in this moment, and that's not because of preaching or this series, it's because of the spirit of God doing something in you right now to just go, I believe it's true. Even with some of my unanswered questions, we just lift up your hand and say, this is the moment that I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus personally. Just so I can acknowledge you not to do anything weird, but just to go, this is the moment for me. I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus and I believe it's true. Just lift it up real quick so I can see it and put it right back down. I wanna encourage you in the house, if you're online, you can text Centerpoint to 94,000. And all of those who've made decisions over these weeks, I wanna encourage you to take a next step. And the best place to take a next steps is through what's just called next steps to figure out how to connect to this body, whether it's online or whether it's personally in the house and then get into a community group where you can begin to do life, get questions answered and grapple with all of this in the context of relationship. God, I pray you would do your thing. Thank you for redeeming, rescuing, saving people. I thank you for what you have left us, what you have preserved. I thank you, God, for the lives that you have changed and rearranged over even these weeks. And we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Would you put your hands together and celebrate those who place their faith and trust in Jesus? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.